I was gonna go with like a pessimistic one. I was gonna be like, it's empower hour, Chris. It's called the empower hour. We all suck hour. and we're gonna die. <laughs> no, I that's, gonna... Called, that, that's called that's called the pessimistic hour. That's the other show I do. <laughs> This is Chris Stanzel with the Empower Hour. This is Victoria Zamatello with Empower Hour. Um, so today we're going to be ta- having a conversation about American foreign policy during this great era of coronavirus. Uh, we will be having our guest Chris Kiase come on for the second half of the show. Just kind of a basic overview. I think I think maybe some very brief introductions are in order. So I, I, for myself, um, like I said, I'm Chris Stanzel. I'm so I'm actually a student at University of Florida, political science. Always had an interest in politics, especially right now. I'm also a sustainability major as well. So a lot of interest in environmental science, um, environmental policy. I think that's something that's definitely not discussed and something I hope to kind of uh, bring to the show as well. Uh, Victoria, what about you? Uh, like I said earlier, my name is Victoria. Uh, I'm also a student at UF. I'm going into my second year. Uh, I am actually a business administration major. I'm the only socialist business major you will ever meet. I was just about and to say. <laughs> I'm getting my concentration in management, and then I'm probably going to get my master's in international business. Uh, after that point, I actually plan on reforming the uh, system from the inside because I want to go into international business law. So that's why I'm here. I've got a really big interest in uh just progressive policy. I've, I think the first campaign I really got myself involved in was uh, Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, and yeah, I'm, I'm just excited to be here. Can't wait for Bernie 2024. Great, gonna be a great <laughs> campaign. Love, looking forward to it already. Mm-hmm. Um, Hopefully, we can clone him in that time. <laughs> yeah, AOC maybe. Hopefully, that that'd be age. an interesting campaign. I'd like to see that. I mean. I, I know, I forget what it was, but technically AOC could run for, I heard someone say she could run for office in 2024 if she wanted, but personally, I think she still needs a little uh, fine tuning before we get to that point. Yeah, I think the only thing, in my opinion, that she needs to change, maybe not even something she needs to change, but just being a woman in politics, like, I, I read an article earlier in the week that was talking about when Sonia Sotomayor was getting her confirmation hearing for Supreme Court justice, they recommended that she repainted her nails into a neutral color so that she was seen as less dangerous in the uh, chamber. And it's stuff like that. Like I think in order for AOC to become more palatable to people, people are going to want her to quiet herself or she's going to have to wait until we are in a political scenario where her just, I'm not going to say loud personality, but the big personality that she has can be appreciated to its fullest extent. I mean, personally, I think, she, you know, I think with that kind of stuff, you have to pick a team. You either have to just go like total bad bitch or you have to like kowtow. And you look at, I mean, that's, that was like one of the only things I always liked about Hillary Clinton is that occasionally she was she actually did, uh, she was aggressive, but it was always like uh, completely um, corrected later. Like her handlers always said, oh no, Hillary, you can't be aggressive. Don't do that. They won't like you. (laughs) And then she'd go against her own instinct. I mean, people would still hate her. I'd probably still hate her anyway, but at least I would like respect (laughs) her a little more if she did that. That's true. If she is just like unapologetically herself. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I think that's the appeal of Bernie Sanders. That's the appeal of AOC. 
And I think what, you know, Bernie Sanders has been through the, been through the fire, so to speak. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, AOC has not been through the fire. Like she has certainly, she's in the fire currently. The question is, will she come out the other side um, a little bit more tame? Like I think a lot of kind of young politicians do, or will she actually retain a lot of her uh, down to earth, being honest, no matter what, you know, kind of stances? I think if you if you take into account just like her history, even before politics, it kind of it makes me think that she's kind of going to retain the New Yorker, just kind of like get right toitiveness. And she's always going to be just I think she's always going to be the person she is. I think she's just going to know when she can really let it shine. So here's an interesting question. Someone like an AOC who's in Washington. How many EEOCs does it take uh, in order to flip DC, flip the Congress, flip the Senate into something more resembling, um, you know, a healthy representative uh, democratic body that is passing reasonable uh, legislation that reflects the interests of the people? The question might be less of how much more or how many more AOCs do we need? I think maybe the, the real question is how many less career politicians like how many less mitch mcconnell's how many less uh i keep wanting to say paul rudd but it's paul ryan <laughs> or Same thing. how many less uh mitt romney's like people like that like how many less just people who are there for the money as opposed to making change because a chain is really only as strong as its weakest link and right now the people who are there just for the lobbying money are our government's weakest links. Hmm. So, so you think it's more of a matter of focusing on getting at the corrupt people rather than trying to necessarily just focus on bringing in AOC-like politicians? Yeah, because I think a, a part of what makes AOC the politician that she is is the fact that she's not corrupt. And I, I don't know if she'll end up being corrupt in the future. I don't know if she's just really good at hiding her corruptiveness right now, if she actually is. But I think the part of her that appeals to most people is the fact that she's making it clear that she's here to make a change and she's not here to be bought by any kind of organization, whereas every other politician basically is. I think the interesting question is, like I said, when do you reach that critical mass where there's either enough AOCs or, because I don't think you necessarily need a majority of politicians like Bernie Sanders and AOC or Ilhan Omar or whoever else, but you need just enough to kind of pressure everybody else into following, uh, at least not being, uh, trying to pull back the curtain a little bit more than they, than they are right now. I would guess if even 10 states had senators or congressmen like AOC or Bernie Sanders or Ilhan Omar, like, I think we'd have unprecedented change around the country. Because I, I personally think that the Republican Party would be able to lobby for serious, meaningful change. It just kind of, we have to wait for the old generation of the Republican Party to kind of age out. So once it becomes more of just a Democrats are the only ones lobbying for change and it kind of turns into people across the board are lobbying for change because if it's only ever going to be democrats then it's really like we're probably going to cap out at 50 percent of people being like aoc so 
Here, last question in regards to this. Um, mm-hmm. So how many Ted Cruz's, Mitch McConnell's, can uh, any democratic system uh, contain before it becomes uh, too rotten? You know, how, how many rotten eggs uh, spoil the bunch? Ooh, that's a that's a good question because I, the only way I feel like you'd be able to answer that is if you look back in history because then if we're able to pinpoint the, I guess, time in our history when it became less about change and more about just keeping the powers that be in power, I think that's the point where we'd be able to say, okay, there's this number of Ted Cruz's, Mitch McConnell's in the in Congress at this time. So there's your boiling point, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give a really simplistic uh, response to that and basically say, I think there's always been Ted Cruz's and there's always been ASCs in the system. It's just the Ted Cruz's and the Mitch McConnell's had to pretend not to be corrupt. That's Six, true. 60 years ago. They were always there. They just had to, they had to put on a much thicker mask than they do. Yeah. They don't even have a mask now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of reflecting this conversation, I hope kind of reflecting what we're talking about today. And that is when you look at something, you take that same idea of how many eggs, you know, spoil the bunch and, or how many good eggs you need to restore the bunch to some sort of normality or make things better. Mm -hmm. How do you take something like American foreign policy and our, our, our general reputation as, um, a world superpower or the sole world superpower uh, since the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, but really, you know, our, our foreign policy record, I mean, you can go back all the way since the founding of the country, but you know, I think most people typically would look just post second world war. When you look at that report card and I, I think it's, it's definitely full of its bad eggs. And I think there are been more bad eggs, every single decade since the end of the second world war um Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the question is when you have a system like that that you could argue was founded on kind of corrupt ideals and or self-serving ideals but i think you could at least argue that was it wasn't at least in it wasn't blatantly falling apart it wasn't blatantly corrupt i mean there was a lot of secrecy going on i think there was you could probably argue the 1950s you know united states toppling sovereign leaders, democratically elected leaders is pretty bad, but at least there was, there's this, the perception was different. But I think today that masks has definitely been ripped off and people truly see that the American empire, whatever you want to call it, has seen its best, it has seen better days as far as its trust around the world and its general, in your opinion, how can the American system, how can our American foreign policy reform and can it maybe it can i think with the idea of like can or can it not be reformed or should we just throw the whole thing out i really think reform would come in the form of just throwing it all out and starting over because it 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 always reminds me of something that my english teacher in my senior year of high school used to say uh shout out miss van she used to always say uh, the American dream never existed. And obviously like this came up a lot when we read The Great Gatsby because even in 1920, like F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote a novel saying, listen, like the American dream doesn't exist now. And then he says, we have to look back a hundred years and say like, did the American dream exist then? And 
once you look at it, like if you look at our first foreign policy action, it was starting a war. And yes, it was a revolutionary war, but it was a war nonetheless. And then if you look at our next foreign policy actions, it was us abandoning our allies in a war. And then it, it kind of has just always built from there. Like we've always been a warmongering country, but at the same time, we've portrayed ourselves as a savior country and we've portrayed ourselves as a Christian country where we take on this holier than thou, like we want to help the entire world when in reality we're only serving ourselves mentality. Mm -hmm. So I think for America's foreign policy as a whole to really become what it says it is, we would have to redo our entire foreign policy, just philosophy. So do you think, how about we, we start with the answer, the, 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 the frank answer. Do you think that's possible without needing some sort of, catastrophic collapse of the American system. Can it happen with, you know, the, the, the kind of our mindset that we have now? With the mindset we have now, I don't think it's possible. But in the future, if we have more AOCs, more Sanders, more Ilhan Omars, like if we have more people like that, who are really working for the people in the country, instead of having the people in the country work for them, it's entirely possible but i don't think our political climate right now is in a position to do this like tomorrow or next year something i've been thinking a lot of, uh, about lately in regards to american foreign policy is you know i think certainly in the way things are written all the books i've ever read the all the classes i've ever taken american foreign policy is usually thought foreign policy in general uh, international relations in general is thought at a very macro level mm -hmm. but i think it's, it really should be analyzed on much more of a micro level, a house by house uh, basis almost, in the sense of, well, that's exactly the question that, that goes back to what we talked about earlier. Is, well, how do you get those AOCs and Bernie Sanders in? What kind of political climate is required in a country that, well, I mean, to put, to put, it, um, to put it nicely, I think is just a little behind the times and is mm -hmm. just getting, getting fed different sources of information than most people in the world are. I think Americans are kind of living uh, in their own bubble, so to speak, in, in uh, or many different bubbles. Actually, I don't even think America itself lives in its own bubble. There, I mean, you can talk to two we different people. We haven't had a unifying ideology in almost a hundred years. Yeah, or close to it. I mean, Second World War, the 1950s was the closest we, I think, maybe we ever got to a united ideology. But even then, even that was then. it was so, it founded it, on hate. Yeah, and there's a lot of suppression, and it, it wasn't that there was an actual united uh, ideology, it was that you didn't hear from the other groups mm -hmm. um, who didn't kowtow to the system. But suffice it to say, yeah, what kind of movement would be required in a country that in general, I, I don't think is really in the mindset to elect somebody, as we've seen, like a Bernie Sanders, even though I think, you know, objectively, I mean, my opinion, of course, but injectively, Bernie Sanders is a pretty, pretty centrist on a kind of a global political scale. I mean, you look at any political test, you're not really that extreme, but Americans threw him out. Suffice it to say, yeah. What kind of extreme um, movement would be required to bring in AOCs and Bernie Sanders? That is not collapse. That is not a collapse of the system. That's the key word. It, that is not a collapse of the system. Yeah. Assuming our system is not collapsing, 
I think the next quickest way to bring in the AOCs, the Sanders, the Omars of the future is to kind of have a political climate that we're in now. I think once Trump and once the just old guard Republicans and just further right wing Republicans kind of age out of power or die out of power, I think once that happens with the generation that we have right now with the millennials and Gen Zs, like we've all grown up with multiple catastrophic events happening in our lifetimes. And I think that has seeded almost a revolutionary mindset in our generation as a whole. And I think once our generation becomes old enough to be able to really make those decisions and actually go into policy in a meaningful way, I think that's when the change is going to at least start happening. I think it's interesting because I, I actually agree. I think, you know, you look at any, any poll, you know, there's been hundreds of them, millennials in general and, and Zoomers too, much more of a progressive liberal generation than previous ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there is the old argument that, well, you know, as you get older, you'll become probably more conservative, which is true to an extent. But I think there are, I think looking in retrospect will prove that I think millennials and Zoomers will truly be a more progressive generation in old age, even in old age and middle oh, age than, than previous generations. Um, mm-hmm. If at the very least because of economic conditioning, you know, we lived through a lot of economic hardship. We're going through it right this second, you know, definitely change the perspective uh, in a lot of policy ways. But uh, I think the problem arises is, is the American system not, I mean, I guess specifically foreign policy, but not just foreign policy, going to uh, kind of be around long enough for millennials to actually fix it? You know, when the old guard, you know, quote unquote, you know, leave or die or are not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the question I, I'm interested in because I, I'm actually just reading a book right now. I'm sorry, I haven't finished the book yet, actually. So, but it's called Disunited Nations, uh, The Scramble for Power, uh, in an Ungoverned World by Peter Zian. And it's an interesting book. Um, like I said, I can't really uh, endorse it or not endorse it because I haven't finished it. But basically he makes the argument that the American uh, American hegemony that has been around since the Second, since the Second World War uh, is on the way out in the next five, eight years. If Trump wins re-election, then it's definitely on the way out in the next four years. I mean, there's no way. Uh, the kind of the American stranglehold for power will survive the next 10 years, just because, I mean, a lot of American hegemony is actually, is built upon the assumption that America is willing to make certain financial sacrifices for the global community, like have Mm -hmm. a huge bloated military to guard every single obscure port and base in the entire world, be willing to go to war with anybody who threatens the global order and, you know, the, the flow of oil and major resources and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know? So my question is, who do you think is going to take that seat as the global superpower? Because I, I personally have a guess, but I want to hear your opinion on it. Well, I think my opinion and the opinion of the author, in, so far anyway, is nobody. Nobody. I mean, because I definitely don't think it's China, personally. I definitely don't Interesting. think it's, I don't think it's China. Uh, China's got so many internal problems, mm-hmm. uh, such an inflated economy, inflated growth. And, you know, something I wish they don't, they don't even talk about in this book enough, I, in my opinion, is in environmental problems. 
I mean, That's climate change, climate change, I mean, let's assume it would take a solid 20 years or 25 years for, there be, for the, the kind of progressive left-leaning shift demographically in this country to actually be reflected in, in Congress and the Senate. 25 years from now, We'll have irreversible damage. Yeah, there'll be so much ecological damage. There'll be so much. And that's not even mentioning that, you know, the American, the the American empire, for lack of a better term, as we know it now, will just simply not exist. If if left in the hands of current leadership, will just not simply not exist in 25 years. I have no, I I have not made a decision or have not made a, uh, an opinion on what that will, will look like in regards to foreign policy, but the kind of, the system will definitely have collapsed by that, in my opinion. Yeah. So it's a time-sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. My, my personal belief, just based on what's happening right now, especially with uh, coronavirus, I, I think China might at least temporarily take a position of leadership on the global foreign policy stage. Because if you look at just our the international response to coronavirus, uh, The Hill actually put out an article about a week and a half ago about how China has just pledged $2 billion in COVID-19 research to the World Health Organization, and it also voiced its support for the independent investigation of the global COVID-19 response, and that is in almost direct comparison at an almost ironic level what the U.S. is doing because in mid-April we completely halted our World Health Organization funding because the president said they favor China too much. And in 2021, our fiscal plan states that we're going from funding $122 million into the World Health Organization to $58 million. And I mean, that's in comparison to China saying we're going to do $2 billion. I, I do think on the surface, I think it's an, it's interesting because I think a lot of it is it's posturing on China's part. They're buying influence oh, yeah. in the World Health Organization. They're buying they're trying to save face on the international world stage because a lot of people are blaming them for the coronavirus in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the opposite end, you have the United States that is backing away from every time Trump is given this opportunity to you know be the stereotypical you know world leader that America has always been been trying to be portrayed as and is portrayed as on the global mm-hmm. stage for you know, 70, 80 years, Trump just always usually drops the ball. There's some exceptions, but he usually drops the ball purposely. One of the things Trump, I think, got right in the sense of he, he had his finger on the pulse of the country uh, after, you know, 20 years of fighting terrorism. He, he has his finger on the pulse of the country that most people don't want to be, Republicans included. You know, and everyone, everyone in between don't really want to be, they don't really see the utility of fighting in all these foreign wars and, and being involved in all these foreign politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you try to explain to some single mother in Nebraska or something why she needs to pay for the, for the World Health Organization that's never going to benefit, benefit her ever mm-hmm. uh, when she's struggling. I think that's an easy argument to fall into. Uh, I think people can, I think Trump's got that correct in the sense of, I think the American people in general, even though we like the, I think, you know, American people, you ask, at least in my own circles, oh, of course, America's the greatest country in the world. And of course we should still be powerful and like have, be better than everybody else. But I don't think people are willing to put up the money anymore to be powerful. And 
I don't think that's a necessarily wrong thing. Like if the United States wants to take a policy of isolationism and just taking a step back from the world stage for five, 10, 20 years, I don't think that's an inherently bad thing because the way that the world is right now, there are other countries who would be able to step up to the plate. And even then there could be a system where there just doesn't need to be a country that steps up to the plate. My biggest critique for the Trump administration is the fact that they're actively making steps to uh, step away from the limelight in leading the world. But at the same time, he's out here like inflating himself and he's out here saying like, I'm the best. I have the best response to X problem. The United States is a global leader in this, 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 and this. When in reality, like a lot of that just isn't true. So in your opinion, since... You know, I think I think kind of Trump's stance uh, on foreign policy has been one of his few things he's been fairly consistent. His isolationist policies been one of the few things he's been fairly consistent on. Where do you think China's heading in the next few years? What, what do you think the direction is? If the United States doesn't do its isolationist policy correctly, there's going to be a very large power vacuum. And I think China or Russia might try to step into that power vacuum and kind of replace the U.S. instead of... Or, replace the U.S. in almost an equivalent manner, if that makes sense. Like, there isn't going to be a country that steps forward and says, like, I will lead the right way. I think there will instead just be a vacuum and another country that's just as bad as us at the moment will also step in and just continue doing the same stuff. I mean, like I said, we could talk about China all day. Um, Yeah. But... I mean, I disagree to an extent. I think China will try. I think China will try. They're doing it right now. They're mm-hmm. trying, you know, one belt, one road initiative and all these other, you know, lending all over the place in Africa. I mean, they're making attempts to kind of fill that, you know, the retreating uh, American policy. They're trying to fill those gaps. But I think for a variety of reasons we can get into later, uh, maybe even a show of its own. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think it's going to, it's a house of cards. Um, Mm -hmm. which I think will also collapse in this decade, if not the beginning of the next decade. Yeah, it's it's weird to talk about it because you can tell we're on the cusp of a great change, but that change could really go anywhere. Yeah, I agree. I I think this is all dependent on if Trump runs re-election because if Joe Biden wins, well, personally, I don't think Joe Biden's going to, I mean, this, this podcast might, this episode might age really, really poorly, but I don't think, (laughs) I don't think Joe Biden's going to, to make it to the election in the sense of, I think he'll be pressured to drop out. That's my prediction. He'll be pressured to drop out at the convention and be replaced by his VP pick in a very sudden, like overnight sort of change. I think that'll, that'll be what will happen, but whoever it is, they'll be normal, straightforward, establishment Democrat. Oh, and God, I think <laughs> at this point, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's what will happen. And if they win, I think you see a status quo of American foreign policy. And you see a continuation of the, 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 the aging broken house and not really reforming or destroying just blind maintenance. Well, Trump is in actively destroying. Um, yeah. Whether he realizes it or not, or if he intends to or not, but he's actively destroying it. We're in an old rickety house, but Trump is lighting the house on fire. <laughs> Which, you know, like I said, depending on your point of view, is either a positive thing or a negative thing. I could see arguments for both. I mean, he's the unintended 
if you, and like I said, we're, this is something I think, I think that's something that still goes to the central question, which is reform or destruction. And I think a, an interesting point about Donald Trump is the fact that he might be the right wing response to, can we reform the system or should we just burn it down? Because a very large part of his platform when he was running or a large part of his support was because people said like, this guy's not a politician. This guy is saying shit that he shouldn't say. This guy is saying stuff that is upsetting people. And a big part of people's support for him coming from someone who lived, who lives in a very Trump supporting family, a lot of people favor him because of the fact that he disrupts the status quo. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that um, I think a lot of conservatives see the problems in a very similar way that, you know, uh, most of the country does and the experts see it. It's just they have different names and faces for things yeah. to identify the problem. But it's the same problem. People recognize that the 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 way, Amer- you know, having these huge bloated wars and endless wars in the Middle East, most people, if you really sit down and pick their brain, they don't think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I think, you know, you could talk to, I mean, I know plenty of like extremely right-wing people that agree that they don't, endless wars are bad. This, this bloated American system left over from this, you know, the cold war, uh, uh, you know, trying to, you know, uh, using like domino theory and like all these like archaic ideas trying mm-hmm. to stop the communists, you know, it's 30 years out of date. You know, we've yeah. been, we've been running on default. We've been running on autopilot foreign policy for, for 30 years. Our narrative's um, really old at this point. Yeah, I mean, even 9-11, we still respond, we still responded to terrorism in a very Cold War manner of, well, let's just throw tons of troops at it. And throw mm-hmm. everything, every military, to, to fight, to fight in a lot of ways, just an ideology. That ties into the Pat Tillman story because that, like, his death was covered up by the U.S. Army to garner support for the war in Afghanistan. And for our listeners who don't know the Pat Tillman story, uh, Pat Tillman was an NFL player for the Arizona Cardinals who left the league in 2002, actually passed up a three-year multi-million dollar contract with his team to join the army with his brother, Kevin, following the 9-11 attacks. And after serving multiple tours in the Middle East, after going through training to become an army ranger, he was killed in 2004 in Afghanistan Uh, The army originally made a public statement because this was a public figure who was killed. And in the public statement to his family and to the United States as a whole, they said he was killed by an an enemy ambush is the words that they used in their statement. And weeks later, they recanted their story privately to the family of Pat Tillman. And they said that he was killed, quote, at close range by friendly fire. And he was one of two deaths and two wounded members of his own squad. Uh, His family itself claimed that the the army covered it up initially to prevent loss and support for the war because this is 2004, like the war has barely been going on at this point. Like it's, it's still in its like fledgling, fledgling phase. And there was no real resolution to Pat Tillman's story until about 2007. So almost three years after he was killed, the army, the army formally censored Uh, spelled C-E-N-S-U-R-E-D, which means to formally disapprove of, General Philip Kessinger, 
for lying to investigators ab- about Tillman's death. Mm. So the army has publicly come out and said that they lied and covered up Tillman's death when it first happened. And they haven't said why, but I feel like it becomes very clear that it was to garner support for the war. Okay. You know, so I actually haven't really heard this story in, in great length before. I mean, I think I recognized the name from way back when, but I, I, I never even, I don't, it didn't really, the details never really registered to me. So I mean, was there ever like a follow-up on this story or any kind of resolution or? The know? only resolution that has come from it is, I mean, after his death, he was posthumously uh, awarded the Purple Heart uh, and various awards. But at the same time, it's it's like, how do you justify that to a mother? Like a Purple Heart isn't the same as having your son being killed by his own army fighting for his own country. So to kind of to kind of tie together what we've been talking about in this first half of the show here, how many incidents like that on the part of the U.S. military can the system sustain before it is it's unfixable and it just has to be completely scrapped and redone? And and if you don't, how can you repair the damage that that causes to an institution like the U.S. military, like the U.S. government? How do you you know how much can a system like that you know? Maintain because that's definitely not the only example. I mean, the U.S., like you said, since its founding, we never have really had a truly uh, squeaky clean record. I don't think anybody can have a truly squ- uh, clean record, but at the same time, a lot of that, you know, these things are happening every day. I mean, U.S. wars, I mean, in the Middle East, we've killed, I mean, I forget to figure, but like, I think over whatever, a million civilians mm-hmm. in the past 20 years, probably higher. I mean, Another important point to kind of tie in everything is that friendly fire is currently the highest death rate or highest cause of death in the U.S. military. So, Oh, I I didn't even know that. That's crazy. We kill more of our own soldiers than other people kill of our own soldiers. And that's the thing. Like it's gotten so bad that we have just completely lost sight of the mission or the, I guess, centralizing ideology of we want to be a country that helps people. But at this point, it's gotten so bad that not only are we hurting other people, we're hurting ourselves. Mm. I mean, I feel like uh, that's something I should have known. I think that kind of speaks volumes that that's not even something that ever really crossed my radar in a meaningful way. I didn't know this story until I, I read it today. And then I did the research for it today. And that's, that's the sad part. Like so few people know Pat Tillman's story like I I personally don't follow the NFL but I mean I'm sure even people who do follow the NFL probably don't know this guy's name I think it's really easy to forget stories like these and I think it's important to to remember them even as they accumulate I think this would probably be a good time to bring on Chris Kiase so we're gonna just take a brief break here and when we come back we will continue the conversation And for your Empower Minute, Bernie Sanders, 1992. In case you don't know, and you haven't seen the latest polls, the American people hold the President of the United States in contempt. They hold this institution in contempt. They hold the Republican Party in contempt. They hold the Democratic Party in contempt. They think that maybe 
given all of the crises facing this country, it's about time that there was some bold leadership here and that this institution made some hard choices. And this is what the choice is about. We are spending $270 billion a year on the military, but we don't have a major enemy. I know it hurts your feelings. I know you're upset about it. I know you're hoping and praying that maybe we'll have another war. Maybe somebody will rise up. But it ain't happening. The Soviet Union doesn't exist. The Warsaw Pact is through. Who are you worried about? Iraq? Panama? Who are you worried about? I'll tell you who I'm worried about. I'm worried about the fact that our workers are seeing a decline in their standard of living. They want to see our industry be rebuilt. That's what they want to see. No more B-2 bombers. No more Star Wars. Let's make the quality products we need. Let's invest in American industry. The Amer no, I won't yield. The American people want to see our kids educated. They want a Head Start program. They want their kids to be able to go to college. They want to wipe out the fact that five million children in this country go to bed hungry. They want childcare for their kids. They want decent education. Let's have the guts to give some leadership to this country. The Cold War's over. Let's reinvest in America. Let's support this amendment. Thank Time of the gentleman has expired. The gentleman from California. Welcome back. We are now joined by a good friend of mine and a correspondent to the show, Chris Chiasse. Hey, Chris, thanks for being here. Of course, first of all, I'd like to say thank you uh, for having me on the show. Uh, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to uh, be on the show, and I'm very excited to see where this all goes. Uh, as a brief introduction, I am a uh, political science student at the University of South Florida. I uh, recently graduated with a bachelor's. Um, and I write on the platform Medium for the Editorial Reformer. Uh, I am also uh, the founder uh, and head editor uh, for Classified Politics. Uh, it's, it's a new startup that we have uh, that we're trying out. And where can the good people find you? So uh, they can find us by Googling uh, Classified Politics or Googling uh, medium reformer should be the first or second link uh, or you can just directly go on the website medium that is m-e-d-i-u-m and type in reformer uh, in the search bar and you'll be able to find me or just type in my name uh christopher kiasse so um maybe just to kind of give us a brief give us a give us the 15 second pitch on um kind of what got you into american foreign politics and, and kind of some of the things you focused on in, in your research well uh the, the the foundation for, I guess, you know, being interested in American foreign policy, American foreign politics, really comes from, I guess, being a political science student uh, and, you know, being drawn to international relations. Uh, domestic politics, uh, every political science student has to understand and has to be versed in. But, you know, when it comes to my, I guess, specialty, I tend to specialize in Middle Eastern politics. Uh, right now, my study is the Arctic. Uh, I'm focusing on Arctic studies and circumpolar studies uh, because it it all, I guess, boils down to great power politics. Uh, if you're looking at it from a structural realist point of view, and if you're looking at it from the, I guess, neoliberal school of thought. You what have, is structural realism? 
Well, structural realism um, for the viewers at home is something that it's basically realist politics. They see the world as in a state of anarchy and there's no government to govern the governments, basically. There's no higher authority other than the country itself. So the United States is its highest authority. There's nothing above the United States. There's nothing above China. There's nothing above France. They are their own governments. They're sovereign, you know. They they own themselves. Nobody owns them. And so what does what so in this kind of uh, hierarchy you're talking about this hierarchy of ideas? Where does Joe Biden fall and where does Trump fall? I would say that Trump is very much of a structural realist in a sense of he too sees uh, the world in a self-help system, if you will. Nobody's going to protect you. It's a jungle. So you got to protect yourself. You have to fend for yourself. You know, as they say, it's a dog eat dog world. You have to be sort of the, the alpha dog or the alpha male uh, in the simplest of terms, I guess, to be able to uh, overcome your adversaries. Because the main goal in this whole game is survival. Survival of the fittest, basically. They see it. Survival of the state. Your goal is to survive at all costs. And if that means building up your military, then you build up your military. If you build, that means, you know, uh, assassinating uh, leaders that are a threat to you, then that you, you will follow through with that. Uh, if you're familiar with the philosopher uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, he was a 15th century Italian philosopher. Um, and he was also basically the father of realism and structural realism. Uh, he wrote the book, The Prince, you know, the famous book, The Prince, uh, that talked about basically how to be a real leader, how to be tough, how to be, you know, I guess. So, is what so I, I'm going to assume that Trump has probably not read The Prince, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you, you know, that does sound like a pretty accurate description. What about Joe Biden? What, what, what's, where does he lie in all of this? You know, Joe Biden, if, if we're talking about purely American foreign policy, he's the same as Trump a structural realist, because Joe Biden is this corporate Democrat. You know, he's a, he's a technocrat. A favorite around here. You know? So, yeah, I mean, he's a guy who's been in politics a long time, and he sees the world as you know, this, again, it's a, it, it all goes down, basically boils down to self-preservation. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden has no real political agenda or political goal. He's just so another puppet. Here's my question. In the very long shot that Joe Biden wins the race, uh, how do you think foreign policy will change between the two crusty old white dudes? Slightly. In my opinion, if, if, if Joe Biden wins, see, okay, this is the beauty when it comes to foreign policy. Because American foreign policy is always more or less, more or less, it's, it's consistent over time. As in, you have the same military industrial complex, you got the same behind the scenes lobbyists, special interests, you know, influencing foreign policy. Um, you know, I guess for, I, I, would, I would argue actually, I would argue that since like Reagan, even before, even before Reagan, I would say Reagan and on, more or less, more or less, plus or minus, we've had the same American foreign policy. Interventionist, um, 
you know, we always say, oh, we get the troops first. First of all, first of all, Jack, as our friend Joe would say, mm. uh, you know, it was get the troops, you know, the get the troops out of Nam, get the troops out of Vietnam. A lot of troops died in Vietnam. A lot of young soldiers died in Vietnam for nothing. A bunch of pointless wars. Then it was all, you know, well, the the first Persian Gulf War happened. Oh, we got to, you know, get help, help, you know, the Middle East. But then it was get the troops out of the Middle East, get the troops out of the Middle East. But we still kept them in there. For crying out loud, you know, Iraq had bombed one of our aircraft carriers. And we blamed it on Iran just to keep the game going, you know, because... Mm-hmm. We were, sell- we, were, we were, you know, at one point, um, we were funneling money to both sides. The CIA was funding Iraq or Iran or whatever it was. And then the, the army was funding the others, you know, helping Iraq against Iran. Or, it, you know, and, and Israel was helping Iran in that game. And we were supporting. It's just, just a clusterfuck, basically. So yeah. l- let me kind of um, so it, it clarify. So in regards to uh, something like Vietnam, the... I would say the mainstream justification that a a lot of politicians bought at the time and, you know, pretty much justified everything up to 91, which is, uh, gotta stop the Soviets, gotta stop the Soviets. That was justification. Domino theory was, 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 you know, uh, going high at that point. So, you know, after 91 is, it's when it really becomes, well, okay, what if this, what is this really about? And, um, I really want to hear your opinion on this. I just want to frame it in this way. I think, a lot of people, in my opinion, like Joe Biden, though Joe Biden, he's just, like you said, he's a figurehead in a lot of respects. So he's one, he's one very small part of a much bigger uh, neoliberal, neoconservative puzzle um, you know, that's been around since Reagan, like you said. And that is maintaining uh, American, uh, um, America as the, the sole global superpower, which you know, is the best way to preserve American and corporate interests. So if that means we have to go invade obscure countries that have no, that never attacked us and they just have their own thing going on, that's still a vested interest for us to do these obscure wars because as long as it supports the entire global system, which a lot of the entirety of the global system does rest upon America being the quote-unquote policeman of the world and supporting the, you know, the, the open trade globalist market you know, got to keep the oil flowing, got to keep the, the rare earth minerals flowing, got to keep trade flowing, et cetera, et cetera. Need this huge bloated military to support all of it. So that, I think that's been the rationale in a lot of these people's mind is, well, in order, in the best of intentions, not counting just the corrupt people that want money, but like if you're being like a, a truly purist, idealist person in American, and you're a neo, neoliberal, neoconservative, I think you look at it as, oh, well, preserving uh, the American order of things will protect America, even if it means doing all these obscure wars, that pointless wars that don't really affect America directly uh, either way. Yeah, and I would, I would return to the same school of, you know, structural realist thought. I, you know, again, that's sort of their, their whole point is survival. So like you said, if it means going off into the Philippines and... Trump doesn't see it that way. You know. But yeah, it, the traditional, I guess, school of thought, if, you, if it means going off into the Philippines and, you know, taking out some dictator or intervening in the country, sure, by all means. But, you know, I guess the way Trump sees, I guess, today's new neo-structural realist, new school of thought, new like realist school of thought is that, you know, very protectionist, um, 
very tough on international trade and, and tariffs with China. That's his sort of, I guess, saving grace for his foreign policy. To be, to be honest, to be fairly honest, I don't really believe that, you know, this is all Trump, Trump's genius when it comes to American foreign policy. I feel like this is sort of his circle that's surrounding him, that advise him. Some of it granted, you know, some I assume are his decisions. Yeah. Um, but I think for the most part, this is the, the hawks around him, the, the Republicans like Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham. You just had actually um, uh, this new sort of uh, term come out, the Pompeo Doctrine, you know, for Mike Pompeo, uh, Secretary of uh, State, or say yeah, Secretary of State. Easy. Oh, but my, my, yeah, yeah. Last I checked, I don't know. We were, we're, we're, we're going in and out so fast nowadays. What we had Rex Tillerson before him, before Rex Tillerson. Who was it? Freaking God knows who. The the point is, you know, the this new term, the Pompeo Doctrine. Pompeo Doctrine is basically this sort of aggressive, uh, you know, realist, hard, be tough, tough internationally, be very sort of inter, not interventionist, but the traditional flexing our muscles. For example, uh, since in the Arctic, it's seen as a future built up to see, you know, this future battlefield of, you know, minerals and resources and oil. That's mostly, I would argue, the media's hype up, you know what I mean, to get articles. It's, it's of, I would say, on a level of, you know, survival, meaning survival, like we absolutely need this or the or the the american way of life would cease to exist it's not a survival interest i would say it's not a critical interest either it's not extremely extremely important i would say it's a significant interest as far as shipping routes and trade routes uh hydrocarbon exploration so hydrocarbons are basically gas petroleum oil and i said we were going to take the oil yeah classic uh, yeah so basically he had uh, been conducting exercises. Pompeo ordered this himself. Uh, the military has been conducting exercises, sailing warships through Russian waters, casually, you know, which we do but that. Russian, but, but Russia and Trump are buddies, I thought. No, I, I, that's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's the good old uh, smoke and mirrors. The Russians and the Americans are friends when it matters, enemies as usual. You know, if we, if we look at when it comes to, I guess, uh, resources and things like that, the Arctic is, is more or less the good old boys club. You know, nobody's going to start any conflict. Nobody's going to start any problems. But, you know, as in the good old boys club tradition, they still show up in their nice suits and the nice cars, you know. Hey, check out my, you know, Rolls Royce or look at this new, you know, suit I got or all that stuff. And in the same sense, you know, they still parade their navies and warships uh, and, and uh, sea ice breakers and nuclear ice breakers and all that stuff, which Russia, by the way, completely supersedes America. And that's one thing America isn't the best in. America has two nuclear ice breakers, one operational, the other is, is out of commission. Russia has over 42 nuclear icebreakers. So if anybody is going to make a move, a true militaristic move in the Arctic and win, it's going to be the Russians, hands down. If you combined all of the fleets, all the, just, just to break the ice, 
just to break the ice. If you combined all uh, of the uh, Arctic Council fleets, it still wouldn't equate to Russia. Russia has done what the United States has has done in, in you know in its military. They they crushed the Arctic. The U.S., on the other hand, has crushed global military spending. More aircraft carriers, more tanks, more, uh, more, more spending than our next 10 competitors combined, most of them being our allies. So, I mean, all of this, at the end, to sum it up, basically, all of this militaristic talk and, you know, the Pompeo doctrine and Trump being tough and so on and so forth, it's a bunch of baloney. It's a bunch of hooey. It's all media, you know, media uh, bait. You know, something for CNN, something for Fox, something for MSB, NBC, Washington Post, even the BBC reports stuff like that. So don't, don't buy all that competition. We are, of course, we're not friends, you know, at the end of the day, but we're, you know, we're still, we're not bitter enemies either. You know, I think behind closed doors, what people tend to ignore is that we do make deals all the time. We do negotiate. Like for, you know, for example, the most bitter of enemies, you think Saudi Arabia and Israel. Saudi Arabia and Israel are actually quite, you know, conventional allies behind closed doors. Uh, they've made backdoor deals all the time. Um, Let me just stop you right there. Um, first of all, Victoria, did you have anything to say? Um. Not really. I've kind of just been taking notes because one of the first things you said, Chris, was just kind of about how often we've been in war. And I kind of took a second to just Google a couple of things. And I basically put together a timeline of just all of the ideologies that we have a country has united against since basically our beginning, like since 1775. Yeah. And I just, I thought it was interesting that since the country was born we have always either been in a state of war or in a state of just tension with another group if that makes sense and i think in terms of foreign policy do you think that really matches the narrative that we've been putting out as a country as a country hmm. you know that's interesting because ever since uh, i guess you know the start of this country this country was started by a bunch of War hawks, you know, mm-hmm. George Washington, a failed traitors. Traitors, yeah, treason, treasonous traitors. <laughs> broke, they broke from the crown. Washington, he was military commander, basically uh, a British expatriate at the point that he, you know, started the leading U.S. I guess, mm-hmm. or let's say American patriot military operations. Uh, ben Franklin, he was sort of the diplomat, the ambassador. Um, you know, then you had Adams, Jefferson, who are also their own sort of commanders. The, this, this rowdy group of, of, of white guys really stirred the pot, you know, mm-hmm. and ever since then, we've had, I guess, you know, as you, as you've stated, we've either been in a, in a state of war. We've been 92% we've, of the time or something like that. We've been in a war, I think. And we're supposed to have our narrative is the country of that wants democracy and to enlighten enlighten people and to protect you know you know like they have on the cop cars the baloney they got on the cop cars to protect and serve yeah you know that, that's sort of the u.s's narrative just marketing strategy 
It's a marketing yeah. strategy. Yeah, that's the new US's marketing strategy. So let me let me ask you this, kind of building on that. We talked a lot at the beginning of the show, uh, kind of about this idea of, of good eggs and bad eggs in the bunch, meaning like how many bad eggs can you get before you, you before you you know you spoil the in, in, entire match? So obviously, no country has a perfect record. No country will ever have a perfect record. Um, America nope, certainly, nope. America certainly has not, and you could argue America's never had a good record. Um, but I guess I, what I'd like to know from you is, is there a way, how many, how many bad eggs, so to speak, in, in kind of the American political system, the way we conduct ourselves uh, internationally, are we at a tipping point where there are too many bad incidents, too much bad blood, too much bad history to really redeem the system as we know it right now without radical transformation and, and you know, revolutionary transformation of the system, basically in a collapse of the system? Or do you think um, it can be reformed in a more of a, a democratic, organic way uh, without needing you know, any kind of drastic, uh, drastic internal pressure? I think that the U.S. has had way, way, we, we, we have so many bad eggs that it's, it's to the same effect of a nuclear radius. Was there ever a point where we, was there ever a point where the good eggs and the bad eggs kind of, our good acts, our good deeds kind of balanced out with the bad ones? Was there ever a point in our, in our kind of expansionist history where that's been the case? It's a good question. You have to think. It def, definitely pre, definitely pre like 19, I would say. Definitely pre 1950. Unless, unless you're Native American. Unless you're Native American, yeah. Then, then no, from the start. Unless, if we're talking about that, then no. And that's no. what I mean. Since the beginning yeah. of the country's history, there's always been some group that we've suppressed. Because, yeah. like, I, oh, I actually took a really interesting class at UF. Uh, uh, it was based, it's called Race and Law in the American City. And it started in the 1670s with Bacon's Rebellion and how race became or how slavery became a race issue instead of a class issue. So literally since before the U.S. has been a country, we've been oppressing people based on race, based on class, based on nationality. And that that's kind of why I personally want to say I don't think we've ever had a clean record. You know, I, I do agree with you. You've never had a clean record. But as far as like balancing where, you know, we just, we did, we, we ain't winning, but we ain't losing either. <laughs> Probably like if I had to be, I'm being generous here. I'm being very, very generous. Probably. Second um, World War is kind of an example where. That's, that's what I'm trying. That was what I was going to say. And we're being generous by saying. Generous. I mean, not if you're Japanese or if you happen to live in the wrong city in Japan at the time, but certainly, I guess in kind of a very holistic point of view, America was kind of doing a lot of good things. But, um, you know, military industrial complex kind of took the reins after the Second World War. And, you know, a, genu a, genuine, a genuine desire to preserve, to make a world economic order that would prevent war from happening turned into much more of an exploitive uh, system, an archaic exploitive system. Um, that's run by mili the military industrial complex and financial interest to put it, to put it simply. Yeah. And, you know, I would also argue it, it wasn't long after world war II. In 1947, you had um, the national security act of 47, 
uh, and that basically established the CIA. It established the National Security Council. And also in 1947, you, this is when the U.S., with the, I guess, you know, centralization of the CIA, because we already had intelligence, but wait, ever since the coal perspiring back in Washington's day, we've had some form of, you know, intelligence gathering and, you know. Mm -hmm. But the CIA, I would argue, that was a great paradigm shift. That was a, that was a big change. That was a big, big freaking deal. When you had the Security Act, National Security Act of 1947, you had the NSA, you had the CIA. And with that, the CIA sort of became its own animal. And originally, you know, it, it's sort of like, to put it in a, in a way, it's like when you train, uh, like, you know, when you get an animal or a lion or tiger, to put in this Joe Exotic, you know, kind of thing. Ah, oh, very topical, very topical. <laughs> so when you when you have a lion or a tiger, you know it's meant to to serve you and to be a good good pet and entertain you and all that stuff and to protect you. But the lion or tiger becomes so strong it's at one point that it breaks out of its cage and it ends up. Mm -hmm. It won't harm you as long as you don't get it to, get in its way. But it's definitely it's it's autonomous almost semi autonomous to autonomous and that's the CIA. Semi-autonomous to autonomous. 1947, you had the first major paramilitary operation uh, to dethrone Enver Hoxha in Albania. You had uh, later on in the 50s to roll back the Iron Curtain uh, intervention in many satellite states. You had in the 60s, Iran-Contra, uh, where you had the training of rebel soldiers in Nicaragua. Uh, you had uh, in the 80s and 90s, really a bunch of uh, democ you know, basically coup d'etats of Latin American uh, governments that were democratically elected uh, through the first Persian Gulf War and then the second Persian Gulf War under uh, Bush, Bush 43, because the first Persian Gulf War was Bush 41 in the 90s, but the second one after 9-11 happened, then you really, and you had all this Patriot Act bullshit because the CIA then, it really starts doing its own shit. Really starts doing its own shit. You have Guantanamo Bay. You have the uh, you had the torture, uh, Abu Ghraib prison, you know, and you had all of this really fucked up D shit. D Dick Ch the Dick Cheney doctrine. Dick Cheney, Dick, that uh, the Dick Cheney doctrine, and you had you know you had Bush sitting there drooling, while basically Dick Cheney was like you know, it's like uh, you know a puppet. The last like real, last real president that actually did stuff and wasn't a puppet, and um, you can disagree, I would say was probably FDR. I disagree <laughs> to an extent. Uh, I, Eisenhower did stuff. Eisenhower did okay. stuff, and Jimmy Carter did stuff, and Eisenhower, Jimmy Carter did stuff. Sure. But, but I mean, really, okay, this kind of goes to a bigger thing I wanted uh, to ask you as well as, you know, none of these presidents, even though they're technically top cheap, so much influence going on and, and, and so, so many, their, their hands are forced in a lot of respects. Yeah. So what I'm curious about is, you know, when we talk about this kind of central question of can you reform something like uh, you know, the, the American system um, or does it need to be destroyed? you need to talk about accountability. Who's actually accountable for 
the missteps in American foreign policy. Because you talk about something like the CIA, which is this, this huge shadow organization with many, many different components and parts that is operating semi-autonomously for the rest of the system. And then you have the FBI who's kind of doing the same thing. And then the NSA, that's really no strings attached. And then all these other mechanisms and systems of the U.S. government where it's like, sure, the president uh, is technically the chief, but I mean... And may I add, may I add, we only know the, the very tip the very tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the whole, the, you have, and below the surface, you have this massive Mount Everest. Imagine if Mount Everest was underwater. Well, it's like when the Soviet Union collapsed, you yeah. get all these files, decades and decades of secret files that came out after being secret all this time about all the, the crazy shit that was going on behind the scenes. Uh, even crazier than we already knew about. Exactly. That wasn't, that wasn't even all of them. I guarantee you, you have a lot of a lot of files that were never ever released. You had you again, again. I you know from you know Soviet Union files were were released. The the ones that were released, not the tip. Like you know a little bit more than the tip. Like you know you're starting to get down, starting to get a little bit towards the uh, the base of the mountain. But all let, let me ask you this though. Let me ask you this. So my professor, my professor before you before you ask me that he he works. At the NS, he works like at the NSA library, and the man has had a lifetime of researching and and filing Freedom of Information Acts, and you know he's like he's a CIA expert, and when I tell you he's an expert, the man knows the ins and outs of the organization, and even he, even he doesn't know all the real stuff that goes on, and all the real secrets that are kept. We only we only know even. As academic experts, he only knows the tip of the iceberg. Scratch the surface. So because of, you know, this kind of shady stuff that's going on, you know, so if, even if you got someone who, you know, I guess for probably for all of us would be an ideal candidate, someone like Bernie Sanders in office, you know, there's kind of the, the, the notion that just one year after he would get elected, he would instantly be a war criminal, a war, warmonger, rather he wanted the title or not because the the system that he's the head of is so ingrained and so multifaceted and so like a leech can't get rid of it even if you're president there's so many mechanisms you really start to wonder well you know certainly the president is responsible for like you know attacks on bases in the middle east stuff like that you know order of the attacks but there's such like you said a whole mountain of stuff underneath that president can't even keep track of and would probably take any unless you had some sort of massive uh, reform, like I was discussing, yeah. po- political reform, a president could never dismantle the whole system. Um, you, you have to, even if you pulled a Putin right now, which what he's doing, he's reforming the Russian constitution so that he can remove basically term limits and he can serve as president forever until, you know, he dies or gets too old to be president. Um, still couldn't do it. You need, in a lack of better terms, the simple answer the system must collapse. There need, we need to start again, you know, as we were talking previously the other night, you need to, it's easier, it's easier to start from scratch and build a progressive liberal. Uh, what is system. the human cost? Because that's kind of the big problem. What is the human cost of a collapse of the American system, both for Americans and people abroad? You know, we kind of saw a hint of that with the pullout of Syria of yeah. what a collapse looks like. It, Do you think it, there would be another civil war? 
in order to cause this collapse? Because I'm thinking of a certain percentage of Americans who would be very unhappy with the idea of rewriting the Constitution or just reworking our government so it becomes a progressive government. You know, there's a great, and I'm pulling it up right now, there's a great uh, quote that uh, Bernie Sanders had put out. Well, while, while you find that, let me just uh, kind of briefly respond to that. I think a civil, I think a civil war in the in in the in the 1860 tradition will never happen again. Yeah. Uh, mostly because mostly actually because of, of demographic and um, geography. I mean, before it was kind of almost coincident, not coincidental, but it was lucky, I guess, for both sides that their main base of support happened to be concentrated in one half of the country, and the other was in mm-hmm. the other half. It's everywhere. You find Republicans in every city and small town. You find Democrats in every city and small town. And there's so much shifting and moving in the country, so much more interconnected than it ever was before. Mm-hmm. That I think what you would get is just, you know, if you had a, you know, an American system in decline, you know, a financially ruined American system, you would just riots, lots of riots, I suspect, mm-hmm. you know, social unrest, that sort of thing. But nothing, I, I don't, I don't think it would ever be anything organized, like super organized anyway. But um, I agree with, I share your sentiment. I agree with that statement. Um, but also to sort of respond to the, the quote, this is perfect. It's by, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Bayard Rustin, who was a civil rights activist uh, in the 60s. But he, what he basically said, his quote is, if we desire a society of peace, then we cannot achieve such a society through violence. If we desire a society without discrimination, then we must not discriminate against anyone in the process of building the society. If we desire a society that is democratic, then democracy must become a means as well as an end. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you want to build a real progressive, democratic, liberal, you know, and of course these terms are all modern. If you want, if you want to build a, a better nation, a more perfect union. If you want to build a more perfect union, you have to practice what you preach. Mm-hmm. You, know, you cannot say that all men are created equal before God in the Constitution. Made by slave owners. And yeah. you, you can't have slaves. So let, yeah. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate on this one. So let me, let me pose that to both of you, actually. Let me pose this question. Um, uh, a realist, I suppose, uh, w- would argue that you know, there are certain times where you have to kind of throw your ideals or alter your ideals a little bit, you know, compromise, you know, you have to compromise in order to preserve the whole system. You can have a great country running great, perfectly democratic country that doesn't go to war and all that stuff for a thousand years. And it has a thousand more years ahead of it. But you reach a point where it's, hey, if we don't, you know, bomb this particular city in this particular moment, it'll all collapse. You know, we have to bomb the city, you know, mm-hmm. or we're going to collapse. Is it, is, it eth- is it completely ethically void for that leader who's in charge of the time to be like, well, I will bomb this city because, or else millions more will suffer in the future because I didn't do it. So my response would be if we're going to use our bombings of Japan at the end of World War II. What I was alluding to, yeah. Most historians agree that the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki wasn't necessary. And just independent of that fact, like if there is a city that needs to be bombed, something like that, I really think at the end of the day, the most 
war is unavoidable and every union at some point will probably find itself in a war at its own fault or at the fault of another country so in that case bombing a city is unavoidable but there are ways to do it that minimize loss of human life and that uh make it I don't want to say as peaceful as possible because there's obviously nothing peaceful about bombing a city, but at the same time, there are ways to do it to minimize civilian deaths, to minimize damage, and more importantly, it's the the biggest emphasis on who like how you are as a country is what you do after the damage is done. Like, do you help rebuild? Right. Do you help infrastructure? Do you put funding back into this city that you've bombed? So. I think even if we have this like per- perfectly progressive country, one, a war will be unavoidable. Like it will happen at some point down the road. Two, bombing a city will probably become necessary at some point, but we will be able to do it in a way that is different than how we've done it in the past. And three, if we actually invest ourselves in rebuilding this city and rebuilding these people after the damage is done, then I think it's not really a betrayal of a progressive ideology. It's it's like the uh, speak softly but carry a big stick kind of thing. You're right. Like, right. You know, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say that's not the case. Uh, and I'm going to say that if you are, again, using the same logic, if you want to build a, a state on peace, then you must not have violence in the process of building it. Bombing... Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we return to the question, was unnecessary, as as you said, most historians agree that it was unnecessary. If I was Harry S. Truman and I was sitting on the desk and they said, Mr. President, millions of people are going to die if you don't do this. The war is going to continue on longer. I would say, you're a liar. That's a lie. Because the, the war was going to, con- the, the war was going to end anyways. Japan mm-hmm. was already on its heels. It mm-hmm. could not economically, it could not, as far as resources go, maintain much longer. Mm-hmm. And if if I really had, you know, first of all, the, the, the whole bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those were just to test our weapons on a target with a nice justification, plausible mm-hmm. deniability. You know, we had a justification. We're trying to save the world. We're the heroes. But, you know, it's no debate that bombing civilian, purely civilian targets is, you know, extremely unnecessary. And mm-hmm. it was to test the blast radius of the bomb and its effectiveness and how good it was. Uh, if we really, really wanted to take care of Japan, we would have stuck to, uh, you know, starving it economically, yeah. uh, creating a naval blockade, as we did with Cuba, as we did with Cuba. Uh, JFK had a blockade, a naval blockade. Now, granted, those two situations are very different, but um, in the case of Japan, we could have starved them economically. Uh, it, you know, it was sort of like a, like a like a fighter that's you know really hurt. He's on the ropes, and he, at this point, he's just swinging. Sw- mm-hmm. if it's something by the grace of God. He, you know, and it's not even going to be, I guess, that big of a hit. You know. Well, I'm gonna just to interject. Uh, I, I mean, 
I actually disagree to an extent about Japan's willingness to surrender and the strategy, because we we're already firebombing Japan anyway. But let, let me, let's kind of go off that for a second, because that's, that's a whole episode in and of itself is talking about the ethics of that. Um, there's people that specialize in it. But kind of use a start, but let, let me be an asshole. Let me make you guys warmongers, okay? Let me give you, uh, kind of use the Star Trek, my Star Trek knowledge, like the Kobarashi Maru simulation with Kirk, where Spock designs this test to be unwinnable, and then Kirk wins. Kirk, Kirk only wins just by cheating, by cheating the system. But the whole point of the test is that there are sometimes unwinnable situations where sometimes at some point you will have to sacrifice your ethics. Let's just say, and there has been, I'm sure I could come up with a specific example, but because, uh, you, know, you know, like you said, Nagasaki, that, that is a little bit, I mean, it's all gray, but let's just say you had like a clear cut example of like, these, this is a, this is a town of, uh, of terrorists that are all plotting. I mean, and this is, these are decisions Obama and, and Bush and Trump have made. You have a town of all terrorists, a hundred of them, they're all ready to go. They're going to go murder a bunch of people, but there's like 50 civilians or 25 civilians in the middle. And it is like, without a doubt, no question. If you go, these terrorists will instantaneously go murder a thousand people in the town next door if you don't bomb them right now. There's no other options, we have no other resources, we just have the bomb. There's no, there's no troops 500 miles. What do you do? You know, and I think that, and like, I mean, I am being a little facetious to an extent. I think the real answer is we shouldn't have been there in the first place. I mean, that's, that's that, I know that's the answer you're probably, you guys are probably thinking of, but bear with me for a moment. How do you deal ethically in your country with situations where you do have to sacrifice your ethics? Um, in order to keep the country uh, around. And I think that's, that, that tug and pull has kind of dictated American foreign policy from the get-go. I think the thing about ethics is it's not a black and white situation. And there isn't going to be a point where like, there isn't like a certain point where you're either in agreement with your own ethics or not in agreement with your own ethics. Because at the end of the day, like no matter, every time you help someone, you hurt someone. And every time you hurt someone, you're helping someone, whether you know that person or not, whether that person has anything to do with like how you're interacting with person A, everything you do has a negative and positive consequence. And your question in itself is a good question, but at the same time, it's, it's a, it's a weird ethical dilemma because ethics isn't black and white. Ethics is one of the most gray subjects in the world. Well, yeah, it depends what kind of ethics you have too. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it basically yeah. comes down to that question, do the ends justify the means? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what I would argue basically is that you sort of have to, you would almost have to go and change like, as Captain Kirk did, change the game. Change the no, he system. cheated. He, he hacked the system. Yeah. Reprogram the game so it's possible to win. But the whole but what happens in the end of the movie is that there's an there is actually he actually has to face an actual unwinnable scenario yeah. where Spock has to where Spock has to die in the end. Right. In order to save the ship. Um, right. But you know, this is it, yeah, I mean and this is the part of the conversation where it becomes a lot less we all become a lot less sure because it's you're right. You look at you know, there have been we have, we make compromises with devils all the time. FDR, someone who I think a lot of progressives look up to, yeah. you know, locks Japanese people up in internment camps. He made a deal with uh, Uncle, what do you call him? Like Uncle Joe, Uncle Stalin, back in the day, back in the good old days, made a, made a deal with with that with 
monster. I mean, you know, even after, even someone who was as, I guess, perceived as a great president made a lot of really shady, you know, he made a lot of shady calls on, in, in order to do what, what he thought was best for the country. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I really think, like, it, it goes into the entire, like, just religious aspect of judgment, because nobody, like, every religion agrees, nobody is perfect. People are always going to make mistakes in their life, whether you call it a sin or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's almost like there's a scale. Like, as long as your good severely outweighs your bad, then honestly, it obviously doesn't excuse action. Like good egg versus bad eggs, essentially. Yeah, it's it's like a 50-50 balance. If even if you're like 51% good egg versus 49% bad, bad egg, I probably wouldn't argue. That's probably still like, bad, I, yeah. I would say, yeah. Yeah, but if there's like a, if, if it's at least 60-40 or like 70-30, even then, like that's, that's a mediocre egg. And... Yeah. At this point, it's kind it's unavoidable to be a mediocre egg, and you really have to try to be a good egg, but you also really have to try to be a bad egg. <laughs> and you know, to add to that, I guess, uh, to go back to our whole you know base argument, do we have to change the system or can we try do we have to let the system collapse, or can we like change it? You know, has there been so many bad eggs? that we can't change it by using, you know, I guess your measurement, our, our bad is like, I would say 80 or 90, even 95. Mm-hmm. Our good is like five or 10. Exactly. Know. We need a few good things here and there, but. Well, and, and I'm just going to clarify your point too. Um, I, I personally don't think 95% of the personnel in the mil- U S military, the CIA are evil or bad. I think a lot of them are just, they're working in a, it's like, it's like the guy who's it's like, yeah, it's, it's the machines. like the guy who swept the floors uh, at Auschwitz. You know, that guy mm-hmm. in and of himself is probably not an evil man, but he's, he's in a system that is evil. But, you know, here's, here's the argument then. Um, here's how, let, me throw you, let me throw this argument at you. Is, is he truly, I guess, innocent though? Didn't he have... Oh yeah, he's a collaborator. I'm sure he's not innocent, he's a collaborator. But I mean, if by that logic, 95% of Germany are collaborators and the other 5% either were dead, died, uh, hid, or were in the concentration camps. Exactly, right. But as in, as in our sort of active ability to think and make you know, choices. But besides that point, I guess the, the system itself is is the main main problem and the Mm -hmm. only way the only true way to you know change the system is to have radical change and at at, at the collapse of the system you know you have to have radical change you have the system must collapse uh this whole sort you know i guess american empire has to collapse has to Mm -hmm. collapse no matter how much even if we get Two Bernie Sanders terms. I don't so, even. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's not going to be enough. But I just I think this is um, kind of the underlying point of uh, that, and it's really important to to this question, and that is what role do the American people have in as propping up, propping up, I guess, the corrupt system that America is. Is, is, is leading right now and how responsible they are they to tearing it down and how much can they actually do to to help bring an end to it 
I honestly think that the American people could probably, they could do a lot. If you look at the, uh, what's her name? Amy Cooper, like, you know, the Central Park lady who was like, like hanging her dog when she was trying to call the police on this guy. Like, have you seen the video? No, No. I haven't. Oh my God. It's blowing up on Twitter. Basic earlier in the week, uh, this man wanted to go bird watching in Central Park in an area that like doesn't allow dogs to be off leash because it's supposed to be like a nature preserve kind of thing. And this is a black man. He goes up to a lady who has her dog off leash and he says, Hey, can you please put your dog back on its leash so that I can like go bird watching without your dog, like scaring all the nature away. And this lady's like, no, even though like it's a part of city code, you have to have your dog on a leash. And he's like, okay, so if you're going to do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. And he gives the dog a treat. And like he like reaches into his pocket, gives the dog a treat so that it runs over to him. And then the lady goes absolutely like balls to the wall, just ballistic. And he starts recording her because she's sitting there, like, first of all, holding her dog off the ground by its collar. Like it's literally like being hung. And that's a completely irrelevant part. That was the part that just really upset me at first. But then like the longer he records her then like she calls the police and he's like standing like a good like 20 or 30 feet away from her but she's here like screaming and sobbing into the phone like oh this this african-american man is threatening me and my dog's life and like he hasn't done anything like obviously and uh when that video got published it went completely viral and since that time that lady has had her dog repoed by the rescue society that she adopted the dog from and she's lost her job as a like vp at franklin templeton good exactly and that's what i'm saying that is the american people's job because had that video not gone viral on twitter had that video not just garnered just absolute rage at like from groups of people then none of that would have happened like this lady would have gotten away with the awful, like she, she would have gotten away with filing a false police report. She would have gotten away with harassing this man. She would have gotten Black harassed. Would have probably gotten killed. Let's be honest. He would have probably gotten hurt or killed. Exactly. Exactly. And that, at the end of the day, is what I think the American people can do. As long as we're holding the people who are doing things wrong accountable, then. I think that there's still hope. But if we get into a sense of complacency where we just like see wrong shit happening and we're just like, I can't do anything about it, then that's when I really feel like the American spirit of, I don't even know what you want to call it, but just the American spirit as a whole has died. And that's that's the part where I'm going to be like, okay, there really is no hope. So, you see, but I think we've almost, we've gotten there. We've gotten there almost. Well, let me kind of. We're very close to getting there. So let me kind of just say something briefly, and Chris, I'll let you go, but I'm just going to be an asshole again for a second here. I'm willing to bet some decent amount of money that if if that whole incident didn't involve a dog, people would. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People wouldn't have cared. Uh, I mean, people barely can muster some care about a few hundred civilians dying in the Middle East. They can muster a video about a dog in Central Park. And I mean, that's not necessarily like a wholesale criticism of the American, that's just a criticism of people, period. That's just people yes. in general. That, that's just human nature. But anyway, go ahead. I just wanted to add that caveat. And, and to add to that, I, I mean, like the American people are so, I, I'm just going to say it, man. 
Think about how stupid the average American is. Americans are fucking dumb. I, I'm going to rush to the American people's defense because what I, what I think is American people aren't stupid in general. American people simply are misinformed about certain things. And I think peop, American people, if you look actual, like just take an actual person, I think people in general are, are misinformed about most things, unless you have a very great education system, very good political discourse. If you actually take an average person and just sit down and talk to them, vast majority of people are rather intelligent in the things they're passionate about and the mm-hmm. things that, that they enjoy. But the problem is things like politics, people just, people, people zoned out of politics like 40 years ago and they never, and they never, people are just politically illiterate. That's the word. You can, t- you can have an entire community of people that don't know how to read that are capable of reading, but they just don't do it because they never learned how to. I think it's the same with politics. People have the capability to, to be smart, informed voters, but they just don't because the culture and their community doesn't, doesn't, it just has, it doesn't foster it. Don't underestimate the importance of language because like from my own personal experience, like, like I said, I come from a very Trump supporting family. And as a result, my dad, who even though like is a man of science, he doesn't believe in climate change. And I remember having like, an almost three hour debate, almost slash argument, where I was like, do you believe in climate change? Like that was my first question. And then he said, no. And then we had this whole just like debate slash argument. And at the end of the conversation, I was like, do you think we're polluting the earth at a higher rate than we can sustain? And he said, yes. And I'm like, do you think we need to take steps to reverse the pollution that we're making? And my dad's like, yes. And I'm like, so you believe in climate change? <laughs> well, it, that's kind of that's kind of like sorry. I, I keep interrupting you, Chris. I'm sorry. Uh, just I'm gonna say this one part, and then I'm gonna shut up. I think it's like what I talked about earlier, where it's like if you talk to conservatives, they agree. They they see the system is messed up. They just use different faces and different words. When they talk mm-hmm. about the corrupt establishment, they say Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Um, you know, when I talk about it, I talk about like the millionaires, the billionaires, you mm-hmm. know, the Trumps. But they're all part of the same club. They're all part of the same group at the end of the day, if you're really breaking down, breaking it all down. But I'm saying those people, people, like climate change, you talk to a lot of conservatives, oh yeah, yeah, we're definitely polluting more than we used to and da, 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 da. But you say, okay, but like the actual word climate change, do you agree climate change, the word is happening? No, no, but that's liberal, whatever the hell, Mm -hmm. you know? It's the same thing when it comes to, you know, okay, if you go to some, if you go to a conservative voter, in in a rural community and you ask them hey do you think the government do you think the government should give you health care or do you think you should have good health care they're going to say yes do you think you should have to pay exuberant amounts of money for your health care no do you think you should have uh, a fair political system where there isn't where there isn't corruption and your vote actually counts yes do you think you should have access to uh, education for all, regardless. Yes. Do you think you, um, you know, et cetera, think, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think we should be uh, invading the Middle East? No. And you're like, okay, so you like democratic socialism. And they're like, no, that's communist stuff. <laughs> and well, like, that, that, the, see, that's another thing. The word socialism, the word communism, Oh. That, you have to remember these anyone born before like 1985 literally unless you're 
every aspect of the culture taught them communists were literally out to kill them. Like yeah. every in school. If it scares media. you, it's communist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like you most of I mean, that's one thing Americans are dumb. I will uh, like hands down are dumb on. They don't know what the hell <laughs> communism actually is. They don't know what socialism is. Because yeah. it's just it's it's a boogeyman word. It's just a boogeyman. Not just Americans, but I would also argue, and I've, I've had personal experience with this. You have all of these sort of elitist Europeans that... A oh, yeah, lot, a, lot, a lot of places, communism is bad. I mean, and I don't blame them for it. I mean, communism is... Not, okay, not just, not just communism, but they, or socialism. Socialism is a bad word for them. Just make a new word. Like, they should have just made that. If you, I swear to God, if you called... Uh, Obama. If you called Obamacare Freedom Care, it would poll like so much higher. They, no, they did that. That's not even actually untrue. They did a poll where uh, you know, they've done this multiple times, but like Obamacare uh, during the you know the end of the Obama administration polled at like fifty percent or low like forty five percent or something like that. The Affordable Care Act polled at like fifty nine sixty percent. Same yeah. thing. It's the same identical thing, but just the name. Yeah, I mean, it changes like, the perception. Yeah, I mean, you know, you see all these Eastern Europeans and stuff like that. You're like, oh, you know, they hate communism and all that stuff. It's it's not, or they hate socialism. You know, they hate, they're like, I'm a democratic socialist. And they're like, so you're a communist. No, those are two different things. But because they lived under a dictatorship, you know what I mean? That used those, those, used those words. That used those words. They're like, oh, same thing. Well, and, you know, that's something like you, you can... I, it's it's very human. It's very human. I'll just say that it's very human. I don't think it's. I don't fault people for doing that. No, no, of course not. So we either find a new word or you know, slow generational change. Millennials aren't scared of so Zoomers barely. I mean, Zoomers didn't grow up in the Soviet era at all. They have no fear associated with the word socialism. Um, yeah. Before I derail this anymore. You know, we're, we're kind of winding down on time here. This is much more of an empowered double hour right now. So um, what, in your guys' opinion, what is the, what is the role? Uh, and I, don't, I know I kind of already asked this, but, you know, do you think there is a role? And if there is, what is it for, you know, average Americans to play in, I don't know, trying to make the, our current, fall, current, current foreign policy better? Um, you know, is it a matter of, trying to elect more Bernie Sanders and AOCs um, and just get the word out? Is it just, or is it just fully exposing the system and trying to bring it down? I mean, in your guys, or, you know, and also, um, you know, what, what is stuff you would do uh, personally? Like what is the kind of uh, way you're trying to go about changing things? I, I go with the old saying, it's, it's very cliche, but it is so, so true. I would do a combination of those things, by the way, but you, you you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach a man how to fish, he eats for a lifetime. And, and in the same sense, you, you, you know, hey, Ber Bernie good, vote Bernie. Hmm. AOC good, vote, vote AOC. Like, okay, but you need to, you need, again, just like the conversation we were having uh, a few nights before, Bob knows. Bob is like, okay, war bad. I don't want to be like, you know, I don't want to be in Vietnam. I don't want to be in Iraq. I don't want to be in Syria. But you need to understand. You need yeah. to understand. If I work 70 hours a week at the car wash, how do I, I don't, where do you get the time? It's, and that's, and that goes back to the government. That goes back to the system. 
you stop need, making people work 70 hour weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's this, there's this old, it's very, almost like it's designed that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, you don't know, but like, seriously, back in the times of, you know, Aristotle and Socrates and all that stuff. The reason those fucks, you know, are, are the great philosophers, Western philosophers. Nobody mentions Lao Tzu or Sun Tzu or whatever talking about these. Anyways, they had leisure time. They had time to... Yeah, they, they were the bourgeois of their country. Just had the founding fathers of the bourgeois of, of America. Socrates was not the bourgeois. I stop you there. Socrates was actually a poor, scraggly guy. That just, By choice. By, By choice. choice. Yeah, By but, choice. Yeah. he was, but that's the thing. That's the, the thing about something like Socrates. He was a bourgeois who was who was a role playing a poor person. That's what Socrates' gig was. Right. But okay, the thing is though, if we the point being, if we get leisure time, if we had, if we didn't, if the structure wasn't designed for us to work seventy hours a week and slave away, you know what I mean? Then we we might have some time i think so i absolutely agree but it's like it's like the chicken and the egg thing you know the government doesn't want people the corporations don't want people to get super woke Take so down the government and corporation so you know so that seems to me that uh, you're 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 endorsing a, a more radical position on as far as empowering people to do to do something yeah something like that but, but anyway but Victoria, I wanted to ask you, so what, what's your opinion on uh, empowering people to change American foreign policy, the American system? What's the best, best way I, of doing it? I think it goes back to just accountability and the fact that we're seeing the Amy Coopers of the world and, oh God, there was another person. Who, oh, and the police officers who were fired, but I'm sensing there's a charge coming their way fairly soon. For they murdering black guy they had yeah. the guy had his knee on the guy's neck and he was for breathing. five minutes and he was like i can't breathe the whole time and the guy was like crying mm -hmm. he was like that guy's he's dead yeah he's that dead really traumatized me but you know what a lot of that happens all the time I and that's the thing as soon as we just like sit back and let it happen like this is this is all social change that i'm talking about here but I think social change is the stepping stone for real political change. Because as soon as we start holding each other accountable- It reflects in our politics. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think, I, I'm a little bit hopeful. I think that we, we're, we're, like I said earlier, we're definitely at the cusp of something big, but it really could go either way. Because we we're showing signs of- positive change being able to happen but we're also showing signs of like this could literally all become one giant dumpster fire in like five years yeah all right. so Definitely. i think yeah. it goes back to accountability i also agree wholeheartedly with what chris said like it like education we need to be a better educated people we need to understand the why behind the what we need mm. to understand why do you believe the things you believe exactly yeah Community, society, religion. Mm -hmm. no, if but, you can't put an intelligent answer behind, as as an explanation for your own beliefs, then you don't believe it. Yeah, you're just saying you do. If I can't do the Socratic method and ask you these questions on why you believe your belief, and if we can't go down this like, you know, for lack of better terms, these like questions, and you mm -hmm. get up to the real core, why do you believe it? And you're like, at you know. 
at some point you have to get to, you know, like the core, like you said, if you're like, you know, what, why do you, why do I support, you know, Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, there's always going to be people who like, if you really just kept like asking them about it until you really got to like the core of who they are, like the core of their mentality, there are going to be people who really just voted for Donald Trump because they hate Brown people. Yeah. You know, the unempathetic bigots. I mean, that's definitely, that's undeniably a good chunk of the country. I would say there's a, there's a fairly significant portion of Donald Trump's support base, or at least there's a significant portion of the conservative voting base that if you really just like, if, if you tapped on the glass of their beliefs, I think it would crack very easily. And I think on that, I think we'll, we'll kind of start to wind down here. Um, because I think honestly, this is, this is one of those topics when we're talking about what supports something like an empire. Ultimately, mm-hmm. it is this, the, 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 as you said earlier, it's the weakest link of the chain that mm-hmm. causes the corruption in the system. And it's average Americans that the way we interact with each other, which ultimately reflects all the way up to the entire global stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a topic that obviously, you know, we can only scratch the surface of, and I don't really think there's a concrete answer one way or the other. I think it's something that should definitely consider kind of digging into more of the details on in the future. But uh, Chris, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you the last word uh, uh, on this and kind of give us a, once again, kind of remind us where we can find you. As the last, uh, you know, sort of where you can find me uh, again uh, on the platform medium uh, under uh, my name, Christopher Kiase, last name is K-I-Y-A-S-E-H. Uh, if you just search my name, the articles that I've written will pop up, uh, as well as the, the pages that I have written for and uh, the page that I started. Um, and then as a, last, as a last word, I guess, uh, well, let's see what to do here. Be pessimistic or optimistic? I'll be, be optimistic. <laughs> as an empower hour, Chris. We shall overcome... I think, uh, because, uh, thank you, Pete Seeger. Yeah. In the long term, in the long term, I I really think that, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the the circle of life, the cycle Mm -hmm. of of life. You will eventually start anew and start a new hope with that and a new system after this one collapses, of course. Still advocating, or you're, you're still pushing that. But that's a fair, that's a fair uh, statement. And I really do appreciate you being on. Uh, always mm-hmm. good having our favorite correspondent. Yeah. So, uh, okay, I think that's it for everybody. So, yeah, I've been Christopher Stanzel. I'm Victoria Zamatalo. Chris Chiasse, thank you again. And um, yeah, we're out. All right. Thanks, everybody. Questions, concerns, you want to tell us how much you love our show. You know where to go. Empower our UF at gmail.com. Everything's alright.